Hello and welcome back to the Drift Proof Podcast. As always, I am your host, Andrew Cipriano, and welcome to episode six. So we are finally getting in the swing of it here. Things are going great. I've gotten some feedback and it's just really encouraging to help me keep going. Uh, so today I have a friend and coworker on. His name is Daniel Villapondo, and we work at the Psych Hospital together. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the Psych Hospital. We're going to do it in a very respectful way, obviously not releasing any personal information, any details. We don't even talk about what hospital we work at. Um, and then we're going to talk about the things that are going good and bad with the current system. And we're also going to talk about Daniel's journey through the application process for medical school. We're going to talk about ADHD and Adderall, and we're going to talk about a little bit of depression and antidepressants. So this is just such a good conversation. We have a ton of insight on the world of psychology and what can be done to make the system better for everyone in the future. So like always, thank you for listening, and I hope you guys enjoy. Hello, everybody. Wait, could you say your whole name again? Daniel Villapondo. Cool. And we can use that? Yeah, we can use okay. that. Okay, so me and Daniel met, I don't know, probably seven months ago, but we just started working together um, on the women's unit at our hospital, like, two months ago? About two months ago. Yeah. yeah, and ever since then, we've had amazing conversations about psychology, what he's doing with his life, um, things like Adderall and ADHD and the patients and the things that could improve with the psych unit, and he is going into med school. He's applying right now. So, right. Um, so what are your goals? Let's kind of start there. What are my goals? In my life, um, short term, long term. Like, what do you want to do? What's what do what's your focus do? right now? Yeah. Yeah. So right now, I'm focused on applying to med school, going through that process for the second time. I'm actually a reapplicant. So what happened the first time? Um. Well, the first time I didn't get in. Okay. Why do you think that was? <laughs> like, what what was the whole process like? Because I've never applied to med school. Right. So the process is really lengthy. So it's it's like. Do I need to be louder? Just a little bit. Make sure you're up on like the 12. <clears throat> I know. Right. It's awkward talking right into this thing. Yeah. It's awkward looking at this thing. Uh-huh. You know, like yeah, you're looking at the damn monitor I'm and sorry. I'm like talking to you <laughs> and, but you're like, <laughs> um, but the process is really freaking long. You start applying, you know, in the spring, summer, you get all of your stuff ready. Your letters of rec, your personal statement. Okay. And this is after you do a four year or you're still working on it at the time? Well, so the first time I applied last year, I had just graduated. All right. And so I graduated in the spring, started studying for the MCAT, took like six weeks to study for it. And then I took it and applied to med school after I got my score back. Okay. Which is really not the ideal situation because, you know, six weeks to study for the MCAT, another two weeks to get my score back, another week to decide based off of my scores where I'm going to apply. Yeah. So then there's like an eight-week processing time. So pretty much I was just applying really late in the cycle relative to everybody else. Okay. And I didn't really, you know, I didn't know that. Okay. That's hard though because, so I'm doing my four-year right now. It's online. I have no idea what the process for applying to clinical psych programs are. So nobody tells you that. I didn't know I had to take the GRE. I took that. I guess I don't need it for a master's program now. I don't know. I don't know any (laughs) of the things. I don't know what I need for it. I looked up... I printed off this thing online. It was called Mitch's Grad School Advice for getting into a clinical psych program. My dog is outside making noises. (laughs) I hear. Um, But it was 50 pages, and it pretty much said you need research experience, like a year of it before they'll even look at your application, which sucks, because I assumed working in the psych unit would be enough to get in. So I'm not sure. But what else do you need other than the application? Like, do you have to prepare other than the bachelor stuff? Like, Yeah, well, so it's like they have this service, you know, AAMC. 
um, the American Association of Medical Colleges or whatever it's called. Okay. Where pretty much they give you a breakdown of the requirements, right? So it gives you some data on the applicants. So it's like damn near like 95% of all applicants or like matriculants, the people that get accepted, yeah. have research experience. So like all of them. You got to have research experience. Mm-hmm. Same in clinical psych. You got to have volunteering experience. And that is an area that like I wish I knew or had a little bit more details of what it actually what kind of volunteering they require what kind of service right. they require it's frustrating because they don't tell you any of this no no they don't it helps if you know people sure i don't know anybody yeah so so what's wait what's like your how old are you 26 26 yeah how old are you 22 okay so do you not have anybody in your family that is in healthcare or no. in like a mental health service? Nothing. So I know ever since I started working in the hospital, I'm asking people what they're doing and why, and they usually have someone in their family that's kind of guiding them. Oh my, I, damn near every single time. Uh-huh. I don't have anyone. So I just like to be different in my family. That's why I moved to Spain for a year. Like I like to do shit okay. different. So I feel you. there's like a thousand things my family does and none of them interest me probably because they do them. So <laughs> like, right. honestly, so I wanted to get into psych for myself and it's been really challenging. So I have no one to go to for help except for like YouTube or people that are also working the site. Right, unit. people you meet. Yeah, so which is fine, but I wish I would have also known when I was a year ago would have been great. <laughs> right. So, real quick, what just yeah. motivated you to go into psych? I would say so. Everyone I talked to the psych unit also has like some kind of mental health shit they're going through. Yeah. I had a, a really dark time in 2019, and um, I just started planning my life out. Jordan Peterson, you know who he is? I'm familiar. Yeah, he pretty much does the same spiel get your life together take on responsibility and i listened to a lot of his stuff and he's a clinical psychologist and i liked all the stuff he was saying and i started it would sound silly but like making vision boards and uh researching and trying to figure out what i liked as a kid like all that taking, taking your life in your own hands yeah right. and so i'm like okay i think i like psychology i like self-help i wanted mm-hmm. to do like life coaching and stuff i really like deep conversations i like philosophy okay and this is the middle ground i found between all of it so okay and i like helping people and i, I like i like being around sad people i don't know why but yeah I don't know. Th- that's interesting you say that because everybody I talk to about stories at the hospital mm-hmm. and like I'll have a big smile on my face as I do it. And the, a lot of the time they respond like, oh, my God, that's sad. Yeah. And I'll be like, I'll be telling them of, you know, something that made my day. And they're like, I don't know how you can be around that. And I'm, I ask myself the same thing. I don't really get it either. Why I feel so, I don't know comfortable around them i always think it's so weird because i genuinely go into work i've worked so many jobs and i've never gone in and actually like got energized from the job i have but not in this way and same here i never have in uh-huh. my life I, so, I i go into work and i've been sometimes at work i've been some of the most inspired and just happy yeah i've ever been yeah and around sad people or like people that are super manic and just out of control with their energy and i like right. that i gain yeah. energy from oh that. yeah a lot of times you you feed off it for sure yeah, so that's why I'm going to psych. I have a connection to it. I've always been interested, I think, in it. I just never really put a title on it. Now I can articulate it as I'm older. Right. Um, so why are you going to psych? Like, why would you want to... So he wants to be a psychiatrist. So we're going to go over the well, difference. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm not totally sure what sort of doctor I want to be. Okay. I want to go through medical school first. Oh, so you can still remain... But I'm... Yeah, med school... So med school, the way it goes is the first two years, for most programs, the first two years are mostly coursework, right? Okay. So you know, pathology, all of those things about st- anatomy, you're still doing all of that, reviewing a lot of stuff from your pre-medical coursework. Okay. Um, but you're in the classroom. The next two years, you're 
going on your clinicals, right? And you're going into every, seeing firsthand every field of medicine, right? Okay, that's kind of cool. Yeah, so I feel like that's when I'll, I'll, when I see it all and when I can interact with it all, that's when I'll be like, a little more there certainty. may be something that inspires me that I haven't even experienced yet, right? Yeah. But I feel like it's just taking that leap of faith, knowing that the opportunities that are there will, I'll find something. Yeah. But, f- you know, for the moment, I'm just kind of building at, you know, where we work as a mental health tech, I'm sort of just building on what inspired me to go to medicine in the first place. So what? why did you end up at the hospital, by the way? I was curious. Right. Okay, so... I'm a little. I feel a little all over the place with how I'm with how I'm talking about this, but it's fine. So pretty much when I was younger, when I was 18, I decided obviously to go to college, like a lot of people, mm-hmm. right? It's just uh, you know, it, where I grew up, everybody did it, right? Yeah. So and that was the that was the expectation that my parents had. They were like, you will go to you will go to college, but you can do you can do whatever you want. But, you know, you got to go to college. Okay. So how did you choose your undergrad and what's it in? Right. So I started as a, a business preference major. Cool. Same. So I was just doing, like, business. That's what, you know, everybody from where I f- I'm from did. I think that's know. what a lot of people do. Like, I did a two-year in accounting. Right. Like, because. Detroit metro area, all of my friends, every like, each of their dads works in automotive. And their dads and moms. Okay. I'm sorry. But, like, they all work in automotive or some sort of engineering, business-related sort of field. Yep. But, um, so that's kind of just what I did. Like, I just was, like, everybody's going into business. My six, seven closest friends all went to Michigan State and all went for business or engineering. Right? Okay. So that's kind of just what I was doing. So then, you know, after about a year and a half, my mental health sort of just deteriorated, right? After a long time. Okay. <laughs> I hate to say it like that, but... You know, it is what it is. Yeah, you talk about was, it. That's what happened. So I was not f- fulfilled with what I was doing. I was, you know, unhappy day to day. And for the first time, I was actually, like, actually struggling in school. And the reason for that is it, it goes back to, you know, my my childhood. I've had, like, problems with attention and just problems going to school. All right. So why didn't you have problems before, do you think? Why did it start when you were in college? With my grades and actually my performance level mm-hmm. is, I think I just kind of was able, okay, to you know drift by, do enough. Yeah, I did no enough. Intended. Okay, I think that's with a lot of people too. Um, high school is pretty easy for most people that are relatively. Yeah, my my parents actually took me to the doctor. You know, just like the general physician or whatever when I was younger. Okay, because I had so many behavioral problems. In, yeah. in class, like it was a problem. I was that kid that was like. Their desk was next to the teachers. Okay. Like, yeah, it was bad. So they took me to the doctor. They're like, something's wrong with the kid. (laughs) The kid, you know, all of the teachers are saying that he's just disrupting the class. They were like, no, like, we don't, you know, nothing's nothing's wrong with your kid. He's doing just fine. Um, His behavior doesn't seem terrible, you know, or like it requires treatment. Okay. So that's kind of like from that moment on, I just sort of skated by and didn't give like... Because of my ADD and my struggles, like, paying attention, I didn't give the amount of time and attention to, you know, the things that I realized would actually be really rewarding. Okay. So when I started to figure out my ADD, that started to improve my mood. All right. So what did, what happened after that first year and a half of school? What did you, like, you switched over to right, what, so, what did you get a degree in? <clears throat> I started, well, initially I started reading a lot of psychology and helping myself, right? When I was starting to, I went and saw a therapist, a psychologist. Okay. Um, 
and I was addressing my ADD for the first time in my life, right? Yeah, I started just taking care of my ADD. That was my number one priority. And I did that through reading psychology. Reading, I think I went to Barnes & Noble, picked up a self-help slash psychology kind of book. Mm -hmm. And that is literally what kickstarted it. I had no other influence you know, in my life to sort of go that route until that kind of moment. And then I, it just took off. I rolled with it. And in a matter of time, I felt better. I felt like I had my, my you know, basic life under control. And I felt that I could take the next steps and actually help other people with it. So, so that's what, when I decided. What did you graduate with? What four year? Uh, neuroscience. Okay, cool. So that's actually kind of similar to what happened to me too. I started learning about why I wasn't feeling good and took initiative on doing that. So I have like a whole bookshelf of books next to you that I've been reading and I'm always interested in they're all nonfiction and that should be dry, right? But they're not to me. No, they're not. And right. I have like all self-help and deep psychology and Jung and like random, I have like political psychology, all sorts of weird shit on that bookshelf. Right. I'm reading one right now. It's called The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. And it's about like- what? Great book. You read James it? James Wolfe. Is uh -huh. it James Wolfe? I'm yeah. shocked you've read that. Of course I've read that. Yes. I have. Wow. That's- that might be t like a different discussion. Cool. But that whole uh, kind of group of authors and that that way of thought, I, I mm -hmm. fucking love it. Yes. Like, yes. Okay. So anyways, that's that's what got me into psych too, is also self-reading and getting interested in actually pursuing it myself. It wasn't anything in college. It wasn't anything my family did. It was, I want to learn more about this because I want to know how to kind of tackle my own mind and become, I don't know, more, have more agency over my own life. Right. So that's my interest. So you work at the psych hospital, you got the four year and then what sparked you? Cause we work with at the psych hospital, there's psychiatrists and I, I want to talk really lightly about it, but, um, they're not the best at bedside manner. A lot of them are foreign from different countries and right. I don't, I'm not inspired by them to become a psychiatrist to be honest. So me and Daniel have had conversations about this. So like why at least at the moment are you thinking about psychiatry? Mm, this is, this is a really good question. So after, you know, my my trials and tribulations with mental health i i had a psychiatrist oh, okay. a, that i was actively you know seeing for a little bit and this guy was this guy was good okay there so are good psychiatrists that's there, what obviously. was like yeah this guy was good and he was like a role model for me and i was sort of like well almost not like a role model because when i look back at it i really only had those interactions with him for a short amount of time before i really started to get better okay now was he actually doing therapy or is it just like no he was just giving me meds okay he was just giving me meds but he could tell you know he, he was paying attention to me okay he could tell what i needed and what i didn't need cool right so when i was like learning about the roles of psychologists and psychiatrists and mental health care and mm -hmm. you know just looking at this perspective really or looking at mental health and you know what i could do with my life from a broad perspective you know, I considered it all. PhD to become a psychologist, okay. the PsyDoc, all of it. And at the moment, at the very beginning, it was like the pre-medical route to get the MD would provide me the most opportunity okay. and, the, and the, you know, the most amount of influence and ability to make an impact. That okay. was my idea at first. Yeah, no, that makes sense though. Yeah, and it was sort of like, I remember saying like early in it, like, yeah, I'm just doing this to 
maybe in case I decide that's what I want to do. But the pre-medical track, that's not something that you can just kind of ease into. It's like you were doing it or you were not. Yeah, that's the whole drift proof thing. Like you got to pick or not. Right. (laughs) So I just sort of threw myself into it when I changed my major from business preference when I was doing terrible. And I changed to psychology with the pre-medical track. So I was taking all of these psychology classes, which is in the School of Social Sciences. Yep. Um, at Michigan State. And then I was also taking these pre-medical classes just to reach that requirement so I could eventually apply to schools. But it was a lot. But it was from those pre-med classes and how well I did in them that I realized, oh, shit, like, this is my thing. Like, this is my calling. I can understand this on a deep level. And this is a way that I'll be able to, you know, add a... This is an area of healthcare that I'll be able to add... A unique perspective too. Okay, so was it that the classes were easy to you, or they were still hard, but you're actually interested? So that's why you're doing. Oh no, it's because they were easy. Okay, I'm surprised by that answer actually. No, well they weren't easy, but like they required a lot of thought and attention. It was just I had never put thought and attention into any single class. So why were you able to do it when you were taking those classes as opposed to business classes? Right, that's that's the interesting thing. It must have been, it was interesting to you on a different Right, level. I liked it, and I was so totally wrapped up in it. Okay. And in, in my pre-med classes specifically. I had always liked in high school, biology and all the sciences, those were like my favorite classes, but they were still like school. Yeah. You know, part of my mindset was like, let's see really how hard this is. You know, they all, (laughs) all these pre-med students, they all like complain about how hard it is. So when I was doing well, I was looking around and I'm like, hmm, you know, like this is, this is my thing. Confidence boost too, I'm sure. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so we're going to talk a little bit about the current state of the psych hospitals in the country because we have really good conversations about these and I think it's a very broken system, but I just want to like lead off. So right now... People come into the psych unit, usually they're involuntary, what, 95% of the time, right. which means that they go to a hospital first, and then a somebody with a mental health li- license, or even sometimes a medical doctor, will give them a petition, which is like a legal document, saying that they have to go inpatient at a psych hospital. Um, and then once they're there, the psychiatrist sees them every day, they have a social worker, they have the techs like us on the floor, and they have a nurse always. And it's such a quick process. So like the psychiatrists, what, what have 60 clients, maybe 60 patients, Yeah, around something there. like that. Uh, they see them for five, 10 minutes a day. They get them on new meds and then it's pretty much like a medication facility to get them stabilizing out. But there's just a lot of stuff wrong with that. Right. In my opinion. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm surprised you want to be a psychiatrist, but I think you also want to be a better. Yeah, well, one. no, here, let, let, let's continue, I guess, my sort of thought progression on yeah. this. So I took all of my, you know, hard science classes, right? And when I, by the time I graduated, I figured research and innovation and technology and progressing what we know okay. is how I'll make an impact. Like, I was fully convinced that, like, I'd be spending my time in the lab. Okay. Or doing, interacting with patients, of course, as a doctor, but doing research, clinical trials and things like that. When I, when I was looking for a job, because I knew that I needed a job where I could get patient interaction. Yeah. Right? That was my main priority when I graduated. I, like, I went and I shadowed, I, like, a nursing assistant saw on a progressive care unit. All right. So I went and saw that firsthand, and it, it was interesting. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it was something I wouldn't do. It's, like, very rewarding work, I think. And it would help you prepare for what I was trying to accomplish. But, um... 
when I started, when I found the psych job, I figured, you know, that would be a, like my wheelhouse for sure. And when I started working there, I realized that, you know, really a, a whole entirely new motivation for me was interacting with the patients right. and seeing how the way that we talk to them and interact with them, seeing how that can really impact, you know, their care and yeah. their stay at the hospital. Um, that was huge. And then I've sort of just been riding off that energy for ever since I graduated. And now, you know, so totally, I'm, I'm like not really focused on the research or scientific side or hard science side of things right now. I'm really focused on like, how can we Im improve like operations at our hospital? And yeah, improve how, the system pretty much. Right. All right. So when I graduated, I had one idea of how I would make my impact. Okay. After getting my job, you know, and gaining experience at our hospital, um, that sort of idea began to grow a lot. Okay. Um, and that happens as you're aim as long as you're aiming at something and you're walking in that direction, you're going to miss about a hundred times, but you're going to get more accurate every time you shoot. So like your pictures going to get clearer and clearer as you keep going. Exactly. Right. But my idea with what sort of physician I would be also started to kind of change when I really saw and began to meet the psychiatrists and, mm -hmm. you know, and see how they interact with the patients yeah. and see how they impact their, decide to impact their patients' lives. Okay, so how, and that was kind of, I was like almost discouraged. I was, I was getting discouraged. Can we talk about that? Yeah. So what do you see that you think could be improved in the current system? Because I've seen a lot of things, but you also can't throw out the whole system because having the, the hospital is so much better than nothing. So there are, there are things that are good, but what do you think could be improved in your opinion? So this is a really good question because there's a lot that needs to be improved. So give me some things that you want to see improved that you could help with, with your career. Like if you got into psychiatry, what would right. you do better? I, I got you. Basic things are how we interact with our patients. Yep. That's the main thing that we need to improve. Okay. Do you um, think it's a cultural thing? Because a lot of them, our doctors are from India, which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but a lot of them have, you know, compared to Detroit patients that are in the ghetto going from India, there's actually a cultural difference. I don't even know if that's as much it, but it's, it's more who the hospital is, you know, what the hospital is allowing to get by. Mm -hmm. So like what? Like, they're just letting a low standard of care get by. The, the doctors don't have any check on them. Yeah, right? so what are they doing exactly? Because I want people to know what, what's not going right, on, right? Yeah, so I've read a little bit of our hospital's policy, right? All right. And in the policy, it sort of lays out what the role of the physician should be. Okay. So right? And there is a, just a lot of detail and a lot of describing how the doctors are the leaders of the treatment team. Yeah. Right. And you would think that I speak to and interact and report to doctors. Mm -hmm. um, that that's just not the case. You know, they show up, they see all of their patients as fast as possible. Yeah. And, and they go home. Yep. And they're hardly ever on the unit. And no, they walk through the unit to go to another unit. Right. <laughs> and time walking around the unit. <laughs> and they're just not fully concerned with their patient's treatment. It doesn't seem to be that way. Yeah, so can I, really fast. So we're techs. We spend the most time on the floor with our patients. We know them the best, I would say. You know, maybe the nurses too, but we are literally, that's our whole shift is actually on the floor. And then... Um, we have by far the most amount of patient interaction sure. of any role in that hospital. Yeah, which is awesome. I love that. But it's also frustrating because I've talked to the doctor a handful of times and usually it's literally him saying, get me next patient. 
Um, so that's frustrating. Oh, yeah. But then the nature of the system, too. So for anyone who doesn't know, it's a medication stabilization facility. It's pretty much any of the short-term mental health hospitals in the country. So the doctors aren't there to fix the patients, do therapy. They're pretty much there to stabilize them until they go. And a lot of the times they get literally five to ten minutes a day. They have as many patients as they possibly can. These doctors work at other hospitals. So they walk in, take their best guess in five minutes, and then they go. And they pretty much mess with medications so people appear to be stable, and then they send them out. Um, they hold patients too long a lot of the time. I don't know if that's for insurance purposes. That's the rumor. I don't want to justify saying that because I don't know for sure, and that's not fair. But it's not, what do you think, 5% of the patients actually genuinely get the help they need and probably don't return back in the system at some point? Maybe? Mm, maybe. So I like, don't know. Maybe. I just have seen the doctors be really crappy you know, verbally. There's no bedside manner. They'll get patients. I think one of my patients in the guy's unit was on seven different medications. Right. Literally seven right. Medications. So, right. And my whole, what I was saying about the doctors being the leader of our treatment team yeah, is they just don't interact with the staff at all. Or really, or the patients. It's or the patients, but get. they don't interact with the staff in any way. They are not a leader no. at all. They come in and we are trying to maintain the unit and get our job done to take care of those patients. Yeah. And that is just not their concern. They are concerned with, you know, seeing the patients and and leaving. And and I think that they probably believe that they're doing everything they can. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to assume that. Um, like, I literally saw, we have a patient, or we did a couple weeks on a one, one-to-one, which means there's always a staff with them at all times because they're either super... In, <laughs> Super psychotic, which just means that they're not really connected with reality or they're very suicidal and we have to watch them, make sure they're going to be safe on the unit. And he literally walked in and this poor girl is very depressed and she's not having a good day. He asked her three questions. Do you want to hurt anybody today? Do you want to hurt yourself? Do you want to hurt anybody else? Are you seeing things, hearing voices? No. Checked off the box and left. And then she started crying when he left because it was so dehumanizing how he treated her, in my opinion. So this is, this is kind of a part of a greater point. All right. Is that I do believe that that these a lot of these psychiatrists believe that asking those three questions is all they can do for that patient. And now there's a lot of reasons for that. That's why bedside manner and how physicians decide to interact with their patients is not the only way that we can improve their patient like patient care. Okay, so what else do you think realistically that the psych like what could you do better if you were in one of these facilities where you were take you were forced to take as many patients as you can so they don't have to hire another psychiatrist? and you're quick i don't you know what i mean they're almost i'm not saying they couldn't be better because they absolutely could but they're also in a position to where the system encourages that kind of behavior because they have a ton of patients they're trying to make as much money as they can at the hospital with right. this little staff that's just the business aspect of a privatized hospital and um yeah they're in a rush so what else like if you were in that situation what would you do differently if i was the doctor yeah jeez I wouldn't be a doctor. Okay. There. The only thing is I've heard that they've had better psychiatrists there and they almost burn them out because they try to push more clients than they want, more patients than they want. So they actually try to give individualized care. Right. And they can't, so they leave and go somewhere else. So that's my whole thing is like it almost encourages bad doctors to come in or... Mm -hmm. Right. It, it's, it's tough because this problem has so many pieces. So what would you do, I guess, if I was a doctor in their situation? Yeah. Um... The most fundamental thing that I would do is talk to the staff more. Okay. That is something that I think would not take much of their time away. Right. But would really just add a, a fundamental perspective 
to how their patient is doing. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I think the fact that they don't talk to us makes it seem like they don't care because it's like clearly we know about how this patient is feeling right now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that is odd to me that they don't do that. Yeah, so, okay, so we just took a pee break and then <laughs> we're just gonna kind of restart because we're rambling a little bit, but uh, me and Dana are just gonna talk about what else is the problem with the current system and what we could try to do to fix it or just some kind of hypotheses on what would be better. Right, so. So what's the problems you see in our hospital? Like the, really? The, the first, you know, the most important problems are, you know, how the physicians interact with the patients. Yep. We already talked a little bit about that. I don't know if we want to like re-go over that. We don't have to reiterate. So we did that earlier. Second, first and foremost, is probably how the staff is treated. Yeah. Well, because it's a private. So here's my theory. It's a private business. So they're going to do as little staff as they possibly can and burn them out. And that's how they make money. So right. I don't even have an issue with how the staff's treated. I expect it. Any job I've ever worked, that's how it's been. Right. But when you think about it, the staff is the most important resource that those patients have. Yeah. Considering the lack of actual medical treatment that is available. Yeah. So pretty much the patients are getting groups every day. Rec therapy, if anyone doesn't know, recreation therapy is like pretty much teaches coping skills. Like let's, instead of doing drugs, we're going to do coloring or go on a run or talk about our feelings. Like it's very basic. It's not real one-on-one -on -one therapy. So the patients are receiving absolutely no one-on-one -on -one therapy. So if mm -hmm. that's what you want going into a psych hospital, be careful going into a psych hospital. Um, if you're in a crisis, I wholeheartedly say if it's going to save your life or, you know, you need actual medication because you're going through psychosis or something really severe, go to the psych hospital because that's great. But um, there's no therapy. The doctors are very short. The right. patients expect things going in that aren't there. It's very institutionalized feeling. There's no colors on the walls. You're barely outside. We have courtyards, but they're not. It's not really the place you want to be if you're depressed unless, again, you're extremely suicidal and you just need to be stabilized. But if you're, like, mildly depressed or just having a bad time in life, you know, maybe that's not the best place for you. Maybe you should go to therapy or just even like a counselor. You don't need to go to a clinical psychologist, go to like a master social worker who does counseling or a licensed counselor. Or I think that's like one of the interesting things about our job is we are the ones that are responsible for sort of dealing with the doctor's mistakes. Yeah. We're, we're the ones up. that are there to kind of act as therapists you know, in a way, but, and that's what these patients need a lot of the time. And that is, that responsibility is put onto us. It is. When we have all of these other responsibilities, which our main responsibility is supposed to be, you know, maintaining safety on the unit. Yeah. So and we do 15 minute rounds, literally check on every patient, pretty much check if they're breathing every 15 minutes is, is forward as I can get with it, but that's what the job is. Right, and, and observing their mental state. Yeah. Observing, you know, what, what it is they're doing. We do charting. We do one-on-one -on -one therapy with them that isn't licensed, clearly, but we'll go and sit with them for half an hour and talk. We do our own right. individual groups, which that's my favorite part of the job. That's why I still work there, honestly, because you get to go and do a group on whatever you think is important for their mental health. Right, and which, for us, that's one of the best parts of our job. That's why we do it, is because if it wasn't us, who else is it going to be? Mm-hmm. And and that's worrisome. And, and we have to not only do that, but we have to balance that with just trying to maintain the unit on an operational level, yeah. making sure that we have things for the patients, making sure that the patients are getting the right food, you know, making sure that... Yeah, we do. We pretty much do all the dietitian stuff, make sure the meals are correct. We get their beds cleaned up. They almost become cleaning ladies at a certain point. Everything. So we're mm -hmm. just, you know, we have all of these different responsibilities thrown on this thrown on us that could be given to so many different people yeah honestly um and then the social workers they do have a social worker but 
to be forward. A lot of them go above and beyond, but their main responsibility is discharge planning. So let's get your taxi, figure out what group home you're going to, who's going to pick you up. That's most of their job, unfortunately. Mm, Um, So it's not, you know, if you're going to social work at a mental hospital, that's what's going to happen. So get ready for that. You're not going to sit down and do one-on-one therapy. You do a consult where you answer a thousand questions on a worksheet that are pretty much to make sure the, the licensing is there for the what do they call it? Joint commission. Right. Yes. Yeah, so there's like a board that certifies us for being legally open. And it's just like a lot of, it makes healthcare very bureaucratic and not individualized, which sucks. So how right. would you fix that as a psychiatrist? Like what I'm just, I know you're going to med school. You're not sure about psychiatry, but you're thinking about it. So right. what would you do differently? How would you give individualized care and make sure they're actually getting help instead of just a revolving door of mental hospitals and group homes? Right. It's a big question. As, it is a big question. Yeah. As sadly as it is, you know, the system is the way it is. So yep. privatized. We are going to yeah. have to. I will have to work within the system, but try and change it Almost at the like same time. How much Kool Aid do you drink before you're right in the group? Though that's the only thing I'm concerned. That's about. the that's the hardest part, I yeah. think, and that's why some so many people are disillusioned from working in mental health care. Mm-hmm. They get their, you know, they get their job as a mental health tech, and quickly you can see how oh yeah like they. We have bigger problems on our hands than we... And it burns it burns people out so bad. Like our hospital, you get mandated all the time. So you have to work an additional eight hours from what you're working. And then you're 16 hours into it. You have to show up again the next day. And it just burns people out. So my in my estimation, the best thing that I could find to do... I've also picked up my empty beer can like five times. <laughs> um, the best thing that I've come up with is putting out information for free or like... I don't want to work for the insurance companies, I don't want to get licensed even as like a two-year license as a limited counselor because I don't want to work for the insurance companies that are going to license me to make sure they pay out for patients. I want to give alternative care options. Right. So like I'm looking at holistic stuff. I'm trying to do the podcast and videos on YouTube and just put out as much free information as I possibly can. And like a lot of these patients too, there's HIPAA when we're not allowed to talk to them after, but it sucks because there's probably 20 of them that I know right now that I could reach out to that would be very unprofessional. But do like a, hey, let's meet up in this park and we'll do $10 a person group therapy for two hours. Yeah. Which I get it, but like that's something, you know? Yeah, it's better than something. them being left on the street and then coming it's back to the hospital. It's something that they need for sure. It's just a way of make, addressing that need Yeah, in a, in a systematic way. Yeah. Right? So that's why I'm just trying to start somewhere and like mm-hmm. give a, create right. an option that doesn't exist right now that also doesn't rely on the current financial system, the insurance companies that right now right. dominates so, the industry as a as a physician you know the only way that i can really address those problems mm-hmm. is through being a leader and vocalizing my vision for the future of healthcare okay right i don't see myself you know taking on like a just a very political role you know in trying to pass legislation i don't either but i feel like having a strong and loud voice is really important in eventually making that happen. Yeah. And in, in just in every interaction I meet, I have trying to influence somebody and show somebody that the qualities and characteristics that I'm displaying are what we need, yeah. you know, and that is what will push healthcare and mental health care in the right direction. You also, as a psychiatrist, you get so much responsibility. The availability of responsibility is nuts. Like these psychiatrists could change people. 30 people's lives in a day, like literally could change their whole life if they wanted to. And they actually took the time to do it. Um, these people almost look up to them as gods only because they have 
the right to their freedom. You know, they can't go until the, the psychiatrist says they're discharged. So Right. And that's a point that makes me want to be a physician. Yeah. And I think that's... You'd have so much... Po- not, I don't want to say power, but not po- responsibility. Well, power, sure. Whatever word you want to use. Oh, it's a bad word. I, it's a bad word. But the point is, is that... that And that's what I've seen from working as a mental health tech and working... I don't want. I don't even want to say alongside the physicians because we don't We're work alongside that. them. Yeah. But like, by seeing them do their work, I've realized how much they can really impact people's yeah. lives, and that is what motivates me to to keep going in this direction. And that is what has kind of pushed me through that initial adversity or that initial like difficulty, maybe challenge. Well, like when I first started and was like, I don't know about psychiatry as a field. Yeah. It, that is a belief that I now have that, you know, you have to be the change you want to see in the world. Thank you, Gandhi. Were you ever anti-psychiatry by chance? Um, That movement? Never. Okay. Never I have, I'm not been. either. I don't no, know. I mean, psychiatry dramatically helped me. Yeah. yeah so... So, also, really fast, the anyone who's anti-psychiatry, there are psych meds, go work in a psych ward. There are people who genuinely need medicine to be able to function properly. And once they get there, they usually need therapy and other lifestyle changes. But there are some people that come into the hospital so manic they can't talk. They're shaking with energy and anxiety. It's horrible. And there are people who are so psychotic they don't know which way is up. So um, I'm not anti-psychiatry. Yeah, that's that's an important thing we should mention is that patients come into the hospital and you would be surprised how much a single pill or two can mm-hmm. really help these people. Yeah, and I know and, people want to say... That are in a crisis. Yeah. It, it's, you know, so it is a real practice. It is a real field that helps people every day. Yeah, I think it's important to mention that because we sound a little we sound, pessimistic. Yeah, but we're pessimistic, it, right? But it isn't. But there also there are some patients that are coming into the hospital depressed and they're on antipsychotics. And that's, in my opinion, a little bit unnecessary when they just need probably antidepressant and then some real one-on-one therapy. So... You know, I can see why psychiatry has a bad name because there are a lot of times where we throw the pill because it's easy and it's what they know. Well, and yeah, it, and if that doesn't work, you're screwed <laughs> from the doctor's perspective. That's yes, a lot but, of the times. That's how it seems. Is if if the medication that they prescribe for you doesn't work, it's almost like good luck. And which isn't the case because a lot of these people they are just depressed or they have shitty lives. Like there are reasons to be depressed in life. A lot oh, there are come, so many ways that they could be actually helped. Yeah, and that's for sure. So. Anyways, I want to talk to you really fast. I know you said you have Adderall or ADHD, so I want to talk about Adderall because that's what you did, right? Can we talk right. about that? Yeah. So we had a conversation one day in the hospital where we were talking about Adderall and if it was necessary or if they overuse it or abuse it. or um, So when did you start taking Adderall, just out of curiosity? So I started taking Adderall around when I was like 18 years old. Okay. So when you know I was doing really poorly in school for the first time. Yeah. And... I had had this, I don't know if you want to call it a suspicion, but idea that, like, I had ADD. Like, All right. Because I had known that, obviously, I wasn't very good at following through on my goals or accomplishing what it is that it felt like I wanted to accomplish. Okay. That's around the time that I started taking it. Okay, so I don't want to ever want you to feel like I'm pushing you in a corner or anything, but I'm just skeptical about the ADHD movement. So I think 8 to 12% of kids right now are diagnosed with ADHD, which is shocking to me. That's like a... Is it that high? I thought it was I thought it was lower than that. Yeah, so only because I've been doing um, research on it for my classes. So pretty much right now, stimulants are the best way to treat ADHD. That's like proven. That's what they do. That's the go-to. So I was curious mm-hmm. if you ever tried like any... Because they have cognitive behavioral therapy right now with a focus and attention, and they have like... They're tra- doing research with like stability balls and weighted vests and extra research or playground time and like yeah i'm just curious if you ever tried any of that stuff before you just went to the adderall 
Oh yeah. I mean, my parents tried to help me in a, in a number of ways. I went and saw like a natural doctor. Okay. Cool. <laughs> he gave me like four different like St. John's wort. No. <laughs> like saying. he gave me some stuff that I didn't know what it was and he told me I had a lactose sensitivity. Okay. And and that that so this was, was the source of my problems. I'm like, "What are you talking about?" Okay. So then eventually yeah, we went to, you know, I went and saw a psychiatrist and he prescribed me Adderall and okay. that's how I started taking it. Cool, because I took it when I went to, I was 18, I wanted Adderall. So pretty much, you know, the Adderall craze, like everyone our age is, they know, you know, it's a party drug. It can be. Right. Um, a lot of people, most people I know use it as a party drug. And if it isn't a party drug, at least you want it. Most people want it. Maybe that do or don't need it because it's going to help them focus. It helps them not eat, lose weight. You know, it's pretty much like you get the feeling of, I don't want to say speed, but like you get that up from, yeah. you know, it's an upper. So a, you feel a great. euphoric feeling. You yeah. Could say. So I went when I was 18, I went to a medical doctor, which is not a psychiatrist, not a psychologist, nobody with mental health training except for basic med school stuff, which probably isn't enough to be diagnosing ADHD. But I got Adderall from him. Great doctor, great guy, really like him. But um, I wanted it and I got it. And right. I, didn't, I don't think I needed it. So I was 18 at the time. I had never had problems in school. Um, I was doing accounting classes. I didn't like them, but I could still manage them and do fine. Mm. So, so yeah, it's interesting how it's, how it's like prescribed and how it's decided if if somebody needs it or mm-hmm. not. um i think they're starting to get more strict with it they are because it's been so heavily abused right just like the um, opioid crisis which is good that's i think that's really the main thing that's mm-hmm. the main factor is it, it's just been loosely prescribed um i was just curious your experience you know because before you didn't have problems in school until you were around the age where right. i guess what i can say on my experience with Adderall mm-hmm. is if it helps you, it will help you. And if it doesn't, then it won't. Yeah. So. Okay. That's vague. Yeah. But really, it's just you have to be in tune with yourself and you have to want to solve the problems that you have. Okay. I was just concerned. If if you were using it for any other reason than that, then that's when you're going to run into problems. Yeah. Right? So the system just needs to get better at understanding who needs it and who doesn't and helping those people use it as a tool and not as something for fun yeah no that makes sense that's like the responsible doctor thing to say well no that's a fact yeah i was i was curious right and hopefully you know we're on that track but the thing is that is the main thing is we need to help people use these these drugs and not just leave them alone Mm -hmm. to figure it out themselves so can i ask you about antidepressants so i'm gonna give you my quick viewpoint and then correct me if i'm wrong or throw in your opinion but um, a lot of people going to the psych hospital I've seen, or in life in general, I've, before I worked at the psych hospital, I know a lot of people are antidepressants, and it seems like people take them like a magic pill to get better, and they don't really try anything beforehand, and I don't think that's the right way to go about it. Unless you're very extremely suicidally depressed and you're going to kill yourself, like get on them, they're a godsend tool from society, use it, but like I know patients who have been on them for 20 years almost, and it's like they've never done any kind of environmental changes or lifestyle changes. And I don't think that's the right way to go about it. That's my same view on Adderall right. is I used it. I liked it and it helped me, but I also, there was other things I could be doing in my life, like picking classes I was vaguely interested in getting into places that weren't distracting to study. Right. Um, if I couldn't study or focus for the day, try to find out why I go on a run or something, which mm-hmm. has helped me like today I do all that shit. Right. And I'm just fine without the drug. So people go on these antidepressants, they expect they're going to fix their life forever. They get a boost of serotonin for the first month or two and then they wear off and they you know, they are in that hole where they're taking them forever because once you stop taking them, your serotonin drops, right? Right. It's kind of dangerous. So Yeah, it is. What is your viewpoint on antidepressants in general? Like, how would you use them properly? Um, and do you mm, have one? 
No, I've never. I, I I used to take an antidepressant. I did, and I stopped taking it because kind of like what you were saying is they're not going to solve the problem without you doing other things. Mm -hmm. um, you can't rely solely on an antidepressant to make you happy. Do you think they should be used forever? Like, is that um, ever the intended use, in, in your opinion? See, the, this is the troublesome thing. This I need to meet more people dealing okay. with this, and I need to interact with more people to see how they've, you know, how their life has gone and how, if they have tried to make lifestyle changes, has that worked or has it not? Okay. Or is is somebody's illness so bad that they can't even make these lifestyle right. changes? Um, I and think that's a lot of what we see at yeah. our hospital. But I think just like with Adderall, the point, the overall main use of these drugs should be to help people build better habits and build mm -hmm. a better mindset, things that are permanent, because those things are permanent. Or they're at but least medication, it, it, like medication alone it's not like an antibacterial medication where you take it and that infection will be gone yeah it, that's not how it works the mind is is too complex for that yeah and that's kind of the difference of psychology psychiatry i guess in normal medicine is that it isn't it's more subjective and there's the mental stuff you got to work on so i just think that's interesting to talk about that kind of stuff because people expect antidepressants are going to be a magic pill that's going to make them happy and that's not what it's in my opinion what it's for or what it, what's going to happen right so i was just kind of wanting to pick your brain about that a little bit i'm curious about the lifestyle changes too but i've so have you ever read the book the six steps to cure depression without drugs no pretty much this guy stephen alardi he works at the university of virginia i think i might be wrong but he says you have to live like your hunter and gather ancestors and your brain will kind of normalize and be how it's supposed to so get mm -hmm. sunlight eat the right amount of omega-3 fatty acids um go exercise normally yeah social connection um sleep properly just the same time get on the right. schedule and then engaging activity so like do things you actually care about and maybe you won't be depressed right um so i was just curious because i see people who come in the psych unit all the time and i ask them 10 questions do you have a boyfriend or girlfriend no do you have a job you care about no what's your education not what i want it to be mm -hmm. what's your financial situation shit i'm on social security um or unemployment right. a lot of them don't need to be uh do you have any hobbies you care about no do you have kids no do you have a like whatever else it would be going good in your yeah. life no i don't know well uh, right, I hear what you're I'm not saying that's the only thing with depression, but a lot right. of times it is the depression because there's so many little things in life that they're not happy about, and then your mind just snaps into depression. Yeah. And then the pill, they'll take it, feel better, and then a week later they're like, well, I don't feel good anymore. Why isn't this working? And it's like, right. Well, and I think, like you mentioned, the lifestyle changes. I don't know. If you have four kids that you're trying to provide for, mm -hmm. and say, your spouse or significant other is gone. You got all these all these problems going on in your life. Sometimes yeah. going for a walk every morning or making sure you make your bed in the morning or these, you know, individual lifestyle changes that require, you know, time and effort yeah. um, just seem insignificant and not the thing to be worrying about. Right I get now. that. So this is my, my philosophy on, on health care or mental health care for yourself is take the smallest step you can. You're like We all know what to do. To, to feel good and have a good life. Everyone knows the things that they should be doing. Um, right. And if you can't manage all of that, just take one small step. But it's better to be empowered and have some kind of agency and understanding that you can make yourself better than to rely on, well, my life's hard and I should just, I can't do it. Well, that's the thing is you have to be able to take it one step at a time. Yeah, baby steps until you can walk, and, really. And trust that that individual action, lifestyle change, um, isn't going to change how you feel. And at times you will feel as low as you feel now, mm -hmm. even when you make that change. But it's 
I don't know, maybe for me, even, it was just occupying my mind, you know, with something positive. Engaging activity. And then it's once it's done, you can look back and, and be like, hmm, that was like, that was good use of my time or, yeah. you know, like something to help you feel better. And I think continuing to focus on that for a prolonged period of time is how you can actually change and get better. But it's tough. It takes a lot. It is tough. I just, that's my philosophy because a lot of people, my uncle works at, there's a local state run hospital for kids. It's almost like a mental hospital, but it's for just kids who have had horrible lives. But um, I was talking to him about the other day and I'm like, you know, here, I told him my philosophy is that you should teach people that they have some control over their lives. That's Mm -hmm. a better alternative than saying they've been victimized and they should get help from society because that's not always possible. Like the mental health care field falls very short. So I think it's Mm -hmm. better that they, can be taught they have agency over how they feel and stuff than be told that they are victims and they have no no choice over their Yeah, you're their right. Life. That's that's important, but it's also tough cuz there is so much that we are just not doing as a yeah. society to care for them too. Yeah, and I'm not pessimistic, but right. I just don't think that it's appropriate to ever assume that society is going to do more than it's doing because Yeah. it might not. Like our healthcare in the United States is private or it's uh it is privatized and it's run on right. you know insurance and pharmaceutical companies. So well, it's it, that's interesting cuz I feel like, you know, you're focusing on an area that I really don't have all that much time to focus on. Okay. You know, just there are so, like we've been saying this whole time, there are so many different ways that the mentally ill could receive better care. I agree. And it it's going to come from so many different areas, like people talking, like therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, That sort of attention is required, and I don't think society even understands that. No. Um, they don't, and that's why we have so much focus on medication because it seems like the quickest and easiest thing to do and the most realistic. But you could, yeah. tra- you know, even and if they train techs or people wanted to go get cognitive behavioral therapy, I don't know. I just there are so many ways to help people. Yeah, and and that's the thing with medicine. I think people in medicine are so probably preoccupied with what it is they're doing, you know, trying to find new medical treatment that they may not understand that we need to emphasize this. This other area that is not in our expertise, but will contribute greatly to their health, we need to integrate that into our system. Hopefully that change is coming and that progress is coming. Mm -hmm. But you have to, I mean, to get any kind of change, you have to first address the problem. And people aren't talking about it right now. Right. People go into the psych hospital and they're shocked by how it is. Right. It's not good. Like, I worked there. I got my application. I literally searched mental health jobs online. It popped up. The hospital was local. I applied, and then once I started working there, I'm like, this is really fucking discouraging, like super discouraging in healthcare, mm-hmm. and I want nothing to do with it. And that's why I'm so opposed to the current system and why I don't want to go spend six years getting a clinical psych doctorate because one of the nurses on the t- on the floor is a clinical psychologist that got her, mat- her doctorate, and now she's getting her NPC to do nursing and do psych nursing. So yeah. I'm like, that's discouraging to me. I don't want to go spend six years of my life on top of the four I already spent to then end up at the psych hospital anyways and then have to get more education to end up doing meds, which I don't want to... Personally, I know, again, <laughs> they're important, but I have no desire. I wanted to catch people before they need meds or after the meds that they need have already kicked in. That's when I want to catch Right, people. yeah, and we need more people that that think like that. Yeah. And well, what we need is society to stress and to understand that the needs are, that needs are being unmet. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we can create jobs and create opportunities for people like you that want to be in that position. Yeah, or those people just create their own opportunities. Yeah, <laughs> or for people... That, well, but everybody needs help, right? And yeah. that's your your job is not to let other people... It's to help other people yeah. create those opportunities, So right? what is something... I mean, 
I don't know. What is something that you think would be a great idea that we could implement uh, either in the hospital or outside the hospital? Just something that doesn't exist right now that could, that would help people, and it wouldn't be unrealistic. Mm. Like, I can tell you one of mine if you want a second and, to think. See, in our hospital, stuff is so, so bad in our hospital, though, that, like, so it doesn't even... So get actually in-depth on what it is that's bad, so that people what's know. What's bad is they that no idea. there are... We have a large amount of often psychotic women or women just dealing with all kinds of different problems mm -hmm. in such a small area with little to no attention that they actually deserve. Mm -hmm. Like that is that is the fundamental. So what do you think would be better? And maybe more staffing, which isn't realistic. Right, more right? staff is fundamental to reach the standards that the state is even saying that we should is, have. That we should have. The thing yeah. is, is we don't reach those standards. Yeah. So it's hard to find staff anywhere right now. But right. So like once we especially. reach those standards, then we can try and re, you know, revolutionize mental health. So some of the things I want to throw out. So there's a position coming up. It's like a head tech on the floor kind of a deal. Right. Um, and it's not what I want. But I think that if you could get enough influence in that position, I want to do better training on the techs to do therapy of some kind. It doesn't have to be licensed, just something cognitive behavioral therapy of some kind or classes or something like that. And then obviously more staff would help, but I don't know if it's realistic in a privatized hospital that they're ever going to have enough staff to meet the needs because they're going to cut costs as much as they can. That's private. You know, it's a business. Uh, yeah. And I mean, the, the lead tech position will be good because it'll add a level of, of management. Hierarchy, yeah, to that. To, to the techs mm -hmm. when we are really just, we're assigned with just, Manage the unit pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So then when there is no leader or somebody to go to with maybe more experience or with more decisiveness, uh, it's just a mess. Yeah. There's no therapist either. So anyone who's actually licensed in therapy would be amazing. They have two – I think it's two psychologists. I don't, don't quote me on it. But there are two clinical psychologists that work there, and their only job is to go to court to fight the patients um, pretty much to make sure that they have to do the treatment, the doctor says. And then you have to do literal – forced medicine and you have to what is it called court order medicine i right. feel like it's so messed up i've held people down before they don't want the meds and given the meds and some people might need them like i'm not totally opposed to that but it's a moral thing i don't know oh it's, it's something i struggle with for sure it, the that's, kids the, unit that, especially. that's the hardest part of our job is mm -hmm. when you may have to put your hands on another individual to ensure that they get medication that yeah. is something it like I hate about <sighs> our job. Me and Daniel went into the kids' unit one day. We got called a code. So they called a code over the speaker or whatever, and then you have to run over to the unit that has the code and try to help out. So there's this little girl crying in the corner, and they gave her a fourth shot. And it was, I think it was Ativan, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, they don't, Ativan's not something that anyone particularly needs, per se. Like, it's a, what, for anxiety? It's, it's it calms you down. It's a benzo, so it's like Xanax. Mm -hmm. And it was just the saddest thing I've ever seen. She was crying, and it just like I looked over Tina and we met eyes, and it made me think, why the fuck am I working in this, this right. situation? Those like, are the moments that that you're really discouraged, or yeah. that you're really unhappy about your role in all of this, almost. Mm -hmm. uh, but just, at the same time, this is kind of something that I wanted to bring up, and yeah. this is kind of off point. Oh, good, fine, but. If we're, say that here, and I have this one written down. Oh, I love it. If we could just restart totally with mental health care and address the problem from the beginning. Yeah. How would we go, how is it, how do you best go about somebody that, taking care of somebody that is a danger to themselves or to society? Yeah, so that's what I'm trying to do with putting out information and talking to people about these problems. Because yeah. you have, again, you have to address the problems first before you can solve them. So... There's not, the hospital isn't all bad. There are a lot of people that get help and there are a lot of people that need the structure. But 
a lot of them need therapy, so that's one. They just need literally to talk about their lives and see maybe from a third perspective what could be changed that they could manage. And then the medication too, like they need agency over their own medication and not to pick them because they're not psychiatrists, but a lot of these patients don't know what they're taking. They'll go to the med window and take four medications. They have no idea what they're for or anything. How can they possibly expect to get better if you don't even know what you're taking? Um, right. That's a huge problem. So sitting down with the patients, explaining them, just more one, one-on-one in explanation, education maybe. Yeah, that's, see, that's, that, that requires more staff. Than of course it does. But that's no, why but maybe like, I mean from like... The very, very beginning, before you even have a hospital built, how would you address the, these problems? Say you have a woman, you know, that's on a psychotic break and she's got a knife and she's threatening to, you know, kill her family or something like that. Yeah, so I think the hospital actually is a decent setup for situations like that. Right, but what you're saying is that it's not individualized enough, which it, is, it which is, I think, the key factor. So if we are through this whole conversation going to finally get to a key factor it's probably just you could sum it up as it's not individualized enough yeah you have patients that are really having a hard time understanding where they are Mm -hmm. are not really that connected to reality on the same unit along with 40 other people as a patient that is just there because you know she probably had a a bad month or two yeah too much stress and and she reached a point where yeah she had a crisis and she needed help. So that is that is the trouble. Because then you, you have that second patient come in there, mm-hmm. and they don't get any sort of the care they need. No, and then, like today, we spent all day with a very, very manic, and I don't want to say psychotic because she's lucid, but very manic. It likes It's mostly behavioral with her. Likes to act out. So there's five staff on her all day, and then the one that's depressed and crying in the room, we're trying, but... She's not getting what she needs. She just needs to talk to someone. Exactly. And that describes the main problem Mm -hmm. at at our hospital. So if I, I mean, if we were to restart and address this problem from the beginning. I think prevention for most of it. No, no, it's not possible. No, it's prevention. Well, what do we do with all the people that are, that need it now, that are unsafe now? Okay. So what do we do with those people? So that's the thing is, I think the operation that they run is maybe the best we can do right now mm-hmm. for the most top 5% of acute patients. Yeah. But everybody else thrown in there together, um, they don't receive the care they need, and that's the majority of the of the patients at yeah. our hospital. So it's, it's kind of ridiculous how if you were to look at a medical hospital and look at the standard of care that the patients receive there, it's just it's more in tune with what the patients need. Yeah. It's not where we work. Yeah, but it's still a growing field. So, like, I always tell the patients this. Like, psychology was, I think it was the early 1800s, right? Wilhelm Wundt, whatever the fuck his name was, somewhere in Germany. Just just opened the field of psychology. And then the antipsychotic meds just came out in the early 50s, I believe. So, it's new. So It's a new field. Again, it's, it's doing good. There's growing pains. But I just think it's important to talk about the stuff that is wrong. But I don't know if it needs to full, a full restart button. I just think there needs to be alternatives for the other 95% of the patients. Because a lot of them, like you said aren't the very acute ones. My main my main thing for those high acute patients mm-hmm. that really need hospitalization. Yeah, there are some people those, that genuinely need We that. need just full new facilities. Maybe that's right. Yeah. We, uh, there's no I can't imagine from my experience so far a situation where you would need 40 40 patients in one unit. Yeah. Open I, unit where they can do you know wherever they like interact with whoever they like? Do you know about the abandonment era when they close all the pri- the public 
right. hospitals. Yeah. So that's kind of where those patients would end up. A lot of the really acute ones, especially if they were going to be lifelong. Right. But again, I don't know if there needs to be a lifelong psych patient. That's my thing. I think that if you give the right kind of care and they're on the right meds if they need them, then they can have generally normal lives or decent. Well, the, there's a small there's a small percentage of them that, that I think will. You think really? I think they lifelong. will. Yeah, they'll need lifelong treatment. But that's that's okay, and we and we're figuring out, you yeah. know. And we've had ways of caring for them. I went over to the residential facility where mm-hmm. we have adolescent boys, you know, that stay there for up to years. Wow. And I saw the operation we have running over there because mm-hmm. it's a different building than where me and Andrew work. Yeah, it is totally different. Like that is harder to find flaws in their operation than you know how we run on our side. Yeah, so it might just be our hospital. I've never worked in a different psych hospital. So again, I don't want to throw out the whole. So I, I just but. think we we need a whole different way of when somebody you know needs to be sequestered from society. Sequestered. I know. I don't know what kind of word, but like <laughs> <laughs> we need a way to do that the right way, to do it ethically, that matches all of our ethical standards. Because yeah. that's the, that's another big thing is if society were to see what's going on, how it actually works, how these people are actually treated, mm-hmm. and how much they actually suffer, I think we would collectively demand a higher standard. Yeah, that's why we're talking about it, honestly. Right, and that's why we have to talk about this. Yeah, so, and again, it's not like we're going in there beating patients. Like, really fast, just for some quick reference. In the 60s, I think the number, I could be wrong, but I think it's 40% of patients would go to bed in restraints. The five-point restraints head are arms and legs. Um, I've never seen them actually physically restrain anyone with restraints. I've seen them hold people down until they're calm, you know, in a safe way, obviously, where they can breathe. I've seen restraints. I haven't. So um, that's cool that I haven't, but sorry, you have. How many times have you seen them, Joe? One time. Okay, but that's how many months of being there. That's after almost a year of being there. So, So, and then there's no... Things have definitely changed. Yeah, there's no shock therapy. There's no lobotomies. Like, it's not the flu over the cuckoo's nest stuff that we're all thinking when we hear psych unit. It's the worst I've seen is honestly holding someone down and giving them a shot they don't want but that's not gonna kill right. them so that you're right that this is probably something we should have stressed at the beginning just to give perspective but the state of mental health care is better than it's ever been yeah so we're getting that's there. a fact way better we're getting there but there's still things that easily could be improved that i want to call out because they could be improved and they're, they're reasonable right. to improve and, and through the development of the, that's exactly what why we're talking is yeah because through the development of modern medicine and healthcare. The field of mental health, the mentally ill, haven't seen the increase in quality of care that all other areas of medicine have. Yeah, that's all. Even though, granted, they were coming from a much lower place with how they were treated. Yeah. They weren't treated. Oh, my God. The the old asylums literally used to put people in rooms. Um, I think one of the books I read, it said there was one nurse for every 50 patients. One nurse and 50 patients. And they would literally isolate them and abandon them. And for four or three, three to four days at a time before they even went and checked on them. It was literally death houses. They had unmarked graves out back. They were torturing people. So it's so much better. I'm not, I'm not working at the hospital and thinking I'm such a, you know, miserable piece of shit to these patients every day. But there are no. things that I don't like going on, and that's what we're addressing. So, right, right, that's the perspective I think you guys need. I hope we haven't like scared anyone away from mental health because it's an awesome field. Right. Well, there's growth, and mm-hmm. and that's why I think it sh- people should be encouraged to go this route but understand it's going to be challenging yeah understand that you're going into a business still and you're going to see things that are run by money that shouldn't be but that's like any business so if your expectations you know there's people who come in with high expectations and it's like it isn't that so don't have unrealistic expectations but there are again things that could be changed that aren't that bother me right i'm not unrealistic i'm not up in the cloud saying every patient should have four hours of therapy a day and you know um, right 
oysters for dinner and whatever the hell they want all the time. And but I am realistic in my in my opinions, and I think there are things that could be improved. You know, the doctors for um, sure. Some level of therapy it doesn't have to be a ton, but just some. I mean, there should be therapy in a psych right. hospital. But, but like you were saying about the old hospitals, mm-hmm. though the that sentiment is not gone in completely. Because again, I'll reiterate. I think the biggest problem is how you you're grouping forty patients that are dealing with these all sorts of different problems, and mm-hmm. you're just putting them on one unit and trying to treat them all the same. Yeah, pretty much this happens. And so. that is that is not how to do it. And I mean, they are deemed by the state, you know, to be too much of a threat to their own health or to somebody else's yeah, so health that they can't be a part of society and they yep. have to be removed from society. But it's it's the way that we are doing that that is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it's dehumanizing sometimes, and it shouldn't, and it doesn't have to be. We are still off that sort of idea of just we need to get them away and and alone and isolated. So we just throw as many of them as we can in, in a unit, and we kind of disguise it as treatment. Yeah, under the guise that we don't have the resources we should, even though I think that there are plenty of resources if we allocated them more properly. Yeah, or under the guise that we we don't know how or mm-hmm. we don't know the best way or a better way. So that's something, that's one direction that I think we need to really go in is just simply how we are taking or isolating these people away from society. Um, I agree. So I kind of want to touch back because this is a little bit about a direction podcast and we went on an awesome psych hospital tangent that needed to happen. But um, what is your med application process like right now for anyone who might want to go to med school or wants any advice for applying before they actually start applying? Like what wish, what would you have done better or before and what are you going through right now? What is the application process look like? Right. So the application process is a long process. It starts in the spring and okay. it extends all through the next year wow. until you find out probably that next spring if you're going to be attending School in the fall. So what is everything, you don't have to go through completely step by step, but what are things that you need to do beforehand or while you're doing it to get it done? Like, what is that step? Right. Like? So you have to get... You said the MCAT first and foremost, right? Right. The MCAT, other than obviously getting your degree and sure. completing your coursework um, requirements, you have to take the MCAT. That's okay, probably so you, you get a bachelor's, biggest. you get the MCAT. How long does it take to study for the MCAT? I think most people study... Um, it depends. If, if that's all you're doing, a lot of people have like a light second semester of their senior year so they can study like half time on the MCAT that whole semester Okay, um, and take it right as they graduate. I didn't have that sort of luxury because I changed my major so yeah. late. My senior year was my busiest year. Yeah, I'm so, sure a lot of people are doing that. <laughs> right. So that was the busiest time of my life and I didn't have you know time to study for the MCAT my, my last semester of college. So I took out six weeks to study for the MCAT not that long of an amount of time, but I needed to finish it so I could apply to to med school, hopefully not too late. Okay. And then once you start applying, what do you actually what does the application look like? So there's one general application. It's called their primary application. And that consists of a personal statement. So pretty much just a short summary of why you want to go to med school. Cool. Right? That's good that that's actually included because right. a lot of people don't know. You have to, you know, give details of your experiences in research and in volunteering if you've done that. So what kind of research and volunteering would you recommend someone does beforehand? 
really, I think any sort of research experience, it's like work at a lab at a college. If you work in a lab, that yeah, any sort of lab, I think that looks good as long as you gain some insight into the the research process and how scientific method kind of right the okay. scientific method and how we come to have the data that we have. Okay, so you can do that. Any university pretty much offers research opportunities i'm assuming right cool so that's a good place i didn't know that when i was going into looking at clinical right. doctorates I would and it go was on discouraging. like i'd go on your department websites and you know just look up researchers in their labs and you can look up individual researchers you know the most of the time they're professors and literally email them and ask do you have any positions open in your lab that's how you can get a position there a lot of times there's no formal method okay of of applying so just filling out an application sir. yeah it's just you got to find your opportunity and then what is the volunteer experience you're talking about because that's so vague to me so volunteer experience is a little tougher that is probably where i lack could you use your hospital experience as that no okay because that that's paid employment that's ridiculous that they draw the line there it's still experience why does it matter if you're getting well because they want to see that you're volunteering so they want to see and they want to see you serve your community without any sort of financial gain i guess okay so in college that's that's pretty easy because you have a lot of opportunities and resources to help you start volunteering okay just being right. around the university and knowing people right like at michigan state um, they have partnerships with local hospitals. Okay. So for like two semesters, I volunteered at Sparrow okay. Hospital. That's hard for online students because I have no resources at all that I can do. Oh, yeah. That is extremely hard. Mm, it's a big um, gap. That's why I was concerned about the application for online students because it's kind of a newer field. And I don't know. I have no research experience. What am I going to do to go to a different university to get that? Right. Isn't that so, like betraying? Your <laughs> right. So volunteering is a tough thing, especially right now. Um, we're still in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Most places that had volunteering opportunities simply do not right now. They see it as unnecessary, right? When yeah. we're trying to... Ironically, because the university is still asking for it, but... Right. Okay, so you do those two things. Course, right. uh, it's just frustrating. So you do research, volunteer, and then what else does the application look like that you should that you have to do? MCAT? Right, so the MCAT. And then you just have to be able to honestly speak on your experiences. So you submit your primary application, and then each school... that you, So at the very end of your primary application, sorry, is all of the schools listed and you select which schools you want to apply to. Okay. So that's why it's a, pr a primary application. It's just, so it's just for in general, it's you just a, in general. Oh, I thought so each then, school had their own primary. No. Right. Oh, so good. You just have to do one for all the schools. One right. for all of them. So much easier. So much easier. Right. Until <laughs> each school can then send you a secondary application. Okay. Most of the time, it seems like kind of a money grab. Sure. You have to pay a certain amount of money for how many secondary applications. How many schools did you get out a secondary one from? So this year, this cycle, I applied to 16. Oh, my God. Yeah, so that's, that's a, a lot, lot of, of secondary applications. How much do they cost each-ish? Um, upwards of $100 wow. each one. That's a lot. Let's not talk about that. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk about that right now. <laughs> okay. um, but, yeah, so the secondary application process is pretty tough. You have to be prepared to, you know, think back to every aspect of your life and every every way that you've grown and come to, you know, to be the person that you are today. It's just a lot of writing about yourself. It's a lot of writing and thinking unless you want to write and sound fake. Yeah. Right. And that's the hardest part I'm having with it is I don't want I want to sound genuine. All right. But at no like at whatever cost. just out of any curiosity do you think that pandering a little bit would be beneficial to get in i know you shouldn't really do that but if that's how you're going to get in what what's that pandering like pandering. saying what they want to hear 
Oh, yeah, you got to. Mm-hmm. You have to to some extent. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these questions are tailored to people that just haven't shared your same experiences. Yeah. Like for me, I don't have family that is in med- in medicine or healthcare. Oh, you don't either? Um, I didn't know that. Right. So a lot of this stuff is brand new to me. Two, you know, two, three years that I've been wanting to do this with my life. So it's frustrating in, in that aspect. Cool. Any advice to people who are going into do that process or any any advice at all from at least the perspective you have as applying? Yeah, my advice would be be confident in your ability to go to med school and be confident in your choice to do that with your life. Because if you're not, the anxiety will be overwhelming. Because it takes a lot. There's a lot you have to do and and you have to take it on as your identity. You have to really become Mm -hmm. what it is that you want to be. Yeah. And then I know we were talking the other day, and I thought it was interesting. You said that you were kind of wavering in your confidence of actually going to med school a little bit when you're doing these applications. Yeah, that's normal. That's true. Yeah, I would say that's definitely true. Um, I just don't want to give people the impression that, yeah, you're 100%. No, you're always going to face doubt in yourself. That's a part of this process. If you are... If you're doubting yourself, that that's normal. Mm-hmm. Especially, you know, for me, I've never had anybody go do this, you know, in my family. So part of my struggle is just that. Yeah. I don't really know what to expect, but you will never truly know what to expect until you're doing it. You have to be yeah, that's true. confident with, you know, your core values that are driving you to do this with your life. That's yeah. what you need to run on and you just have to be confident enough to pick something and fucking go with it you're not again i don't think you're gonna hate it right the first, like daniel might not be a psychiatrist but at least he's going with something and giving it his all right and through this process i know that you know there's no looking back but i don't need to mm-hmm. because when you do put your head down and you focus on one thing like we were saying earlier you're gonna look back and you're gonna feel good and you're yeah. gonna have learned something and it's gonna be rewarding and you're gonna be better off going forward mm-hmm so, you know, that's the key to really your whole idea of not drifting, right? Thank you. Wow. Because when, you when you're not drifting, you're making progress. Yeah. And this, you might not be where you want to be, but you're on the way. Yeah. And I put a post on Instagram today and it was just said, it's better to be 40 in something than 40 in so wavering and indecisiveness, which people do all the time in the psych unit. They don't know what they want to be and they don't want to pick anything because it's scary. But like, so Jordan Peterson, I don't know if you know him a lot, but he talks about specializing into something people think it's going to be like uh black and white thinking that i'm going to be stuck in it forever but it's actually like a keyhole you have to first get yourself through this tiny opening and specialize and then through that after you get to the other side of the door you're going to open up and have all these possibilities you would have never had before if you didn't specialize mm-hmm. so like if daniel goes to medical school even if he doesn't become a psychiatrist and he's stuck in whatever medical job for a little bit he has so much more opportunity than when he's 30 or 35 to have all these options in medical or healthcare, or anything he wants. But if he never had picked and he kept wavering, he's going to be 35 and not have any credentials to do anything. Right. And that's probably why this route to, to medicine works so well with me because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not consistent with how I feel and I'm not consistent with my confidence. But through this sort of playbook or this outline, I can afford that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just, you know, important to know is that you stick with something and and whatever it is you're trying to do might not have as strict or clear of an outline as, you know, going to medical school. Yeah. But don't stress on yourself. Focus on those key things that are important and, you know, you'll learn what you need to. Yeah. And that's so important. Like, I feel so much better since I've just been on the path of psychology. I'm not special. I don't have to 
get locked in anything I don't want. I'm going to be a tech forever or be a therapist forever. But I have psychology as an overriding direction, and I'm walking in it, and every day my picture gets a little more clear than it was the day before, and I get a little more confident that this is the path for me, even though I don't think there's one path for everyone. I think you can do anything, but as long as you're, again, consistent and you're going in that direction, you'll find something you enjoy in it. Yeah. As long as you don't absolutely hate the path you're walking in, which a lot of people do, more than I think is talked about. There are so many miserable people in the world yeah. that feel trapped. Yeah, but, right, and that's an important thing to focus on for society. And all of us, we should focus on trying to, you know, collectively be better. Yeah. There's so many people that focus on instant gratification and, and just money. And it's like, I just don't think those are the routes to actual happiness. And you can't really. Oh, they're not. No, yeah. that, like, I mean, we've been all over the place today. But For like, sure. From the beginning of when I was talking about, you know, I was unfulfilled in what I was going to school for. When I started learning, when I picked up that self-help book. Mm -hmm. And when I started learning about psychology and learning about myself, that was like, oh, shit, I feel good. Yeah. And I can do something. Something that actually is fulfilling in me. Something that means something to you. Yeah. I did it, too. I have a two-year in accounting because it seemed like a secure job and I could do taxes every year. Literally why I got it. Like, And I sold cars for two years and made good money at 22. And and the thing is, is people can do that. There are people that can do that, can Mm -hmm. be like, all right, like, I'm going to spend, like, half of my day just doing this and Mm -hmm. going to work. And then I'll come home to, you know, everything else that I value. Yeah. Um, I simply did not function like that. No, me neither. With wasting a good eight hours of my day seemed like hell to me. Yeah. And it was, and that's why I was just not motivated to be doing anything until I found something that I'm like, I want to make this in my life. Yeah. And that is, that is not an easy thing to do. And I can't, you know, tell everybody exactly how to do that. No, but everyone has their own meaning and you purpose. Have to, yeah, I would. Hopefully, we can just help and try and. Yeah, that's why I'm interviewing some of the different people. I had a comedian last week. My brother. I had an artist, a spiritual podcaster. Like, right. I just want to kind of give people different looks into people's lives and see what they're doing. But it's amazing because all of you guys have the same message. So it's kind of cool to see like a theme open up from doing all these interviews. Like, yeah. No one can tell you what your meaning is, but you have to pick a direction and go with it and. It's something you have to be mildly interested in. There are people that can be accountants and would be really good and love that and love that structure. And that is not me whatsoever. There can, you know, they could be people in MBAs that love right. whatever marketing and that's awesome. And mm-hmm. um, so, but you have to find it yourself, but also don't aim at just the money aspect. I know a lot of people who are doing that and it's like, it's just not going to, it's not going to lead to where it's you It's not going to, no, it's if, if you feel that you're missing something or that something's not right in your life, that's probably a good thing to look to. Yeah, negative I'd emotion say. is a it's a signal. It's not something wrong. It's, it's your brain telling you that something's wrong, I guess. But yeah, like, and that's again why I do the depression classes. And I'm like, maybe there's something in these seven areas of life that you're not happy with, and maybe it's normal to feel depressed. Maybe not clinically and suicidal. Like that's obviously an extreme. But yeah, if you're just walking through your life depressed and not happy, maybe it's because your life isn't what you want it to be, and you're fully aware, and your consciousness is telling you that. Right. Like, how old were you when you had that dark time in school? I was like, uh, probably from when I was 15 to 18. Oh, okay. that's, I would say that's common actually time. a normal, yeah. Yeah, very common time. But some people just... I think I just happened, luckily, and I, I think the right things came together for me, and I was able to get out of it relatively mm-hmm. quickly. But you got yourself out of it, it's the important thing. You didn't just get... Right, but the thing is, is I had support and I had help. Yeah, I'm not saying, areas. okay, I'm not saying that, but at the end of the day, you were the one who decided that you needed to to be better and you want to feel better and right right and, th- and that's the key mm-hmm. that's the key once you make that decision that's when your support systems can come help you yeah but until you decide for yourself that you know i deserve more 
mm-hmm. or that I'm going to do more, that's where it all starts. Yeah, and it's not even like you're going to feel better initially. Like, But doing that and walking in that direction of something that you care about that you think is going to lead somewhere um, is going to make you feel better eventually. I just I I drill at home so much on this on this podcast because I see so many people who just aren't happy with their lives, and there's so many things that they know they could be doing better and they don't, and then they come in on a crisis and they take antidepressants that they think they're going to help and they do initially, but then, you know, they're in the same spot. And I see people that are 40, 50 years old coming into the unit that have lived their whole life like that instead of doing something meaningful and taking responsibility they know right. they, they could take. And and it's imp- like you're focused on prevention, which is important because I'm focused on treatment too. Well, I am but- right, but. What do you think, at the end of the day, what the most important part of our, our role is? For me, truly, what I feel like is the groups I do. Not yeah. the not getting them food and caring for them. I go above and beyond because I like to do that kind of stuff. And, yeah. But no, genuinely, when I sit down in a group and say, life is full of suffering, it's going to happen to all of you, but you don't have the choice to be happy or whatever, but you have the choice to choose your attitude if you want to try to tackle whatever step you possibly could take today to tackle it. That's what I think is the most powerful. Right. I mean, you go over and beyond, uh, over and beyond in everything. Yeah, but that's so my most important, the most important thing that I think I do there, and you do this, but you just do this subconsciously, is I I'm a positive example, and I I give you know a positive Mm -hmm. vibe off to the unit, and Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, especially for the older patients, that it's like, you know what? How much they've tried every medication in the book. Yeah. You know, the most I can do, or the least I can do, is show up here and and try and help them have a good two three weeks. Just some compassion that they yeah. might not have ever had. And with some the young people. with the young patients, I think the best thing to do is set an example of you know somebody that's happy and that has overcome certain challenges yeah. that might be similar. To I think them. for the old ones too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of times the older ladies they look at me and they're like. I'm 60 years old. Sh- like, shut the fuck up. What are you going to say to me? Nothing you say. Yeah, and then I'm looking at her like, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. I hear you. I, see, I call him on it. See, yeah? Oh, yeah. A lot I, of, see, I don't know how to handle that sometimes. I just don't take their shit. Most like the one today. Well, sometimes I'm like, it's not shit. You know? You have been through this your whole yeah. life. You have seen so many texts just like me come mm-hmm. in here and tell you this. Yeah, but so I don't... <laughs> I'm so unkosher with the job. <laughs> like, I genuinely tell them the system's pretty fucked up, and I know you've done this before. Oh, I do that too. I, yeah. I, I, you have to be real with them. Yeah, That's honestly, the key. You have to be real. With any relationship, if you're not honest, you don't have a relationship with anyone. Yeah. So I hate when people lie. I fucking cannot stand it when people... That's a whole different story, but um, it, the staff will do it. And it's yeah. like, why are you doing this? This is not going to help anybody in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. But no, it just, just makes it harder for you like going I, on. The one-to-one we had um, for a while, she's a little bit better now, but I just told her it was fucked up. And I wanted to try one-on-one therapy with her, and I'm not licensed, and I'm an arrogant piece of shit that's going to try it. And I sat there and talked to her about her life and talked about all the shit she didn't want to talk about. And she had tried to commit suicide, and we talked about that. And she's like, you're the only one who's actually asked about that. I'm like, yeah, well, you're here because you tried to commit suicide. So let's talk about what happened. Um, the damn safety switches on the toasters these days. And yeah. she laughed. Like, But I talked to her about it and I talked to her about her life. I'm like, maybe there's things you could be doing that you're not. And maybe the medication will help you. But if you go back in the same situation, you're not going to feel good. Because um, there's just 30 things you told me about your life that aren't going well. So let's not play a game that you have no control over this. And right. she smirks a little bit. I'm like, that was cool. She hadn't smirked yeah. before that. I'm yeah. like, she laughed at the toaster thing, but that was funny. You know, you have to joke. With okay, sense of humor. Well, that was just objectively funny. Yeah. <laughs> so, sense of humor is the most 
amazing coping skill. Somebody can try to prove me wrong, but oh, it won't work. No, it's that's probably. I was mm-hmm. thinking about that yesterday in the shower. I'm like, God damn, I just need to be. I need to you hear that, ladies. Daniel know. thinks about you in the shower. <laughs> no, I was thinking about you know how it's important to just be like when you're in that mood where everything's goofy. Mm-hmm. That is such an important mood to be. Yeah, in. like everything comes easy. Mm-hmm. Like when you when you have that that mood, that's the mood I try and get in every day, like at work. Yep, I know we were trying to get each other, pump each other up. <laughs> we finally hit it. We just had we to play did. some music on the speaker. <laughs> yeah, but we did it. Cool. Do you have anything else you want to add? Any advice to anyone in life or just uh, yeah psychological? One thing I just want to mention is you know if you're in a position where you're trying to do what Andrew's doing, where you know this is what is gonna fulfill you and be rewarding to you, but. It's just discouraging because it's like the system almost doesn't have a way for you to do that. I think opportunities will open up. Mm-hmm. The field has been growing at an immense rate. And that's because obviously society has drawn attention to it. And because society has drawn attention to it, the state and the legal authorities have raised their standard for what's going on in these facilities. Mm-hmm. That will continue to happen if we have these conversations. Yep. That standard will continue to be raised. It's going to be slow, a slow process. But if you're going into this field or thinking about it, you can be a part of that growth. And and we will, like, we will get there. Like, I'm confident in that. I am too. If you want something, you can actually have it. But you actually have to fucking ask for it. Like, take the job, go to school, uh, make the podcast, like, spend your time doing, you right. know, and I think opportunities will grow. There will be yeah. more opportunities in five years, new opportunities, mm-hmm. jobs that I don't even think they have titles for right mm-hmm. now. Mental health podcaster, welcome up. Hit me up. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, like, I think it's just, you know, a field that needs bright minds and encouraged people, people that want to make a change or do something with their lives. Yep. That's what we need. And I think it's going to be rewarding and you will feel fulfilled at the end of the day. Yep. Well, thank you so much. Of course, thank you for having me. We've been all over the place, but this is actually very. We have. We're, we'll probably have to do this again because we will. We have I don't so much feel to talk that con- We need to prepare like so much more. I won't do that because I just. I'm gonna no, I will because <laughs> I don't. I don't have any way of keeping my thoughts in line. Okay. All right. You should take in a fucking Adderall, dude. Mm, no, <laughs> I can't do that. I'd be even worse. I was kidding. So, if you guys want to ask Daniel any questions about med school, he's more than happy to help. Be cordial and kind, and he'll help you out with any questions. For sure, yeah. Thank you so much. You guys have a good day. Bye.